Kings chapter 19. We're in chapter 19, and I'm, I'm going to attempt to do the whole chapter. Uh, the reason I'm, I want to do that is because that's the entire thought. All 37 verses are the entire thought, so if you only get halfway through, you're not getting to the conclusion. But it's a challenge because not only is this in 2 Kings, but it's also in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 37 and 38 verses. And then also there's a little bit in 2 Chronicles. But that's the challenge, to put it all together in the right details. So I, I want to begin with this an illustration. And we think about our lives and our Christian lives. And um, I... I I, I sometimes hear some of the coaches who watch their football players. Like, everybody probably knows Brett Favre. And um, when he had a coach and he was out there, you could hear him on the sideline going, no, 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 yeah, 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 no, no, yeah, yeah. That's what he would do with Brett Favre. Well, it, it, it sometimes could explain our Christian lives. In other words, sometimes we're going well and sometimes we're not going well. Um, we're looking at Hezekiah, as I said, a breath of fresh air, one of the better kings, and a lot is written about him. And there's a little bit of that, you know, yeah, this is good, Hezekiah. No, 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 don't do that, Hezekiah. And it ends up being good. He ends up in the very end, even though he vacillated, he ends up walking with the Lord and following the Lord. So last week we talked about Hezekiah's uh, loyalty and his God were questioned. Do you remember that? Um, we, when we reviewed it, we, we saw in the very beginning he was, he was doing the Brett Favre very good. Yeah, yeah, the coach is saying good. And he rebelled against Assyria, which he was supposed to do, and trust, the <coughs> trust in the Lord. And he even built that water system. He uh, got the tunnel going underneath, excuse me. <coughs> he got the, the tunnel going underneath Jerusalem and into Jerusalem, and that was all good. And then at the very end, he ends up paying tribute to the king of Assyria. So it was, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Well, we'll pick it up this week as to what happens. So thankfully, Hezekiah is like Brett Favre, who you think he's not going to do well, and then all of a sudden scores a touchdown. And this is what we're going to see. Um, we saw that uh, another episode, and the episode was that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent his officials to Hezekiah to basically say, you better submit, because we're coming anyway. And they questioned Hezekiah's loyalty to them, and worse, they questioned Hezekiah's loyalty to God. And that's when, really, these uh, Assyrians started die to digress, and it's going to be their downfall. Well, the, the uh, people got in on it, and... and these officials are now talking to the people, trying to get them to persuade, say, listen, don't listen to Hezekiah. He's deceiving you. And when he tells you that his God is going to deliver you, 
Don't believe it because look at all of the other gods and the nations that we have conquered. Well, it kind of ends up in a stalemate like that. And then chapter 19 is going to pick it up after that. Now, I, I do want to go back and read something. Um, when they were talking, it seemed they'd come out more and more to the point where they were starting to defame God. At first it was, well, Hezekiah, you're just going to be disciplined by your own God. And then later it was, you know what, your God can't even defeat us. And that's where I really believe that they started to uh, get out of control. So just for review, so to speak, just to bring us back in this context, I want to uh, go ahead and read from 2 Chronicles. You don't have to turn there. 2 Chronicles 32. And this is when Rob Shakah, the official, and that, that's not his name, that's a title. This is when he was speaking to the people. And he said, do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands? Now, he's speaking for King Sennacherib, who is the Assyrian king at the time. By the way, they have already defeated the northern kingdom. So from this point on, I just want to say, I don't really have to say, is the king from the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom? There is no northern, uh, northern kingdom. But we have to deal with Assyria. He said, were the gods of the nations of the lands able to deliver their land from my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations which my fathers utterly destroyed who could deliver his people out of my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, he's, now he is going down the wrong road. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you. And do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? His servants spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to insult the Lord God of Israel. So it's now moving away from Hezekiah, directing it in the gods. And one of the reasons is, is because the people, the Israel people, for all of their difficulties and problems, once they dig in, they dig in. And they're, they're not willing to give up and say, well, God can't deliver us. Because they've seen, they have a history full of miracles and the power of God. They go on to say, they called this out with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them so that they might take the city. And then it ends with this. They spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. Well, probably a big mistake, and it is. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to take a look then this evening at the aftermath of this. And what's going to happen is Hezekiah is going to do what he's supposed to do as a king of God's 
people, he's going to go to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah is going to enter the scene. And God speaks through his prophet to Hezekiah. Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And these aren't fables, Lord. These are the absolute facts. And one fact always remains, Lord, that we should never trust in ourselves or trust in man. But we should always trust in you and trust in your word. Whenever we have a problem, need direction, need instruction, need to know your will, help us, Lord, to turn to your word the very words that the prophets and the apostles have written down for us. So, Father, would you teach us this evening, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we pick it up then, one of the things that we ended with was when Eliakim, who was Hezekiah's official, when he heard all of this, he tore his clothes, and that is a very uh, Jewish custom to show great grief or shame, and there was a lot of shame because they had called out their God. It's one thing to call a man a coward, because sometimes we are, but it's another thing to call the God, the only God of the universe, a coward. And so they went and they told Hezekiah. So let's look at chapter 19, 2 Kings, and we want to begin in verse 1. It says, and when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. So now he is feeling the same way after hearing all of this. And so what does he do? We see a good sign here. Hezekiah goes to the house of the Lord. So even though Hezekiah messed up a little bit by paying tribute to the king, he is now seeking the Lord, and he's going to the house of the Lord. And we saw so many kings of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom not even getting close to the house of the Lord, uh, trying to do whatever they could by hook or by crook to get out of the problem. But we already see he's taking the right steps. Verse 2. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz. So at this point, we have the prophet Isaiah, who was there during the time of several kings. And this is indeed the one who wrote the book of Isaiah. In fact, I'll have you turn there to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, just to show you that the identity is the same. And that's usually how it happens in the Old Testament scriptures. It's the person's name and then the person's father's name. And we're able to either dif differentiate or we're able to confirm. In Isaiah 1, 1, then it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he's a prophet to the southern kingdom. But watch what it says. Which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. 
So if we were to try to figure out how long it was, he, he was a prophet from 739 B.C. to 686 B.C. And his ministry spanned those four kings. But now it's especially with Hezekiah. And again, this is the right thing. Not only was he right in going to the house of the Lord, speaking of Hezekiah, but now he's right in going to the prophet. If you want to know the will of God, if they wanted to know the will of God, they went to the prophet. Okay? And that's exactly what he did. Now, Hezekiah tells them what to say. He says, look, go see Isaiah, and this is what you tell them. And you get to see Hezekiah's heart, but you also get to see Hezekiah's fear, and you get to see Hezekiah's hope. Look at verse 3. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress. Mark that phrase. Rebuke and rejection for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Well, the first thing I want to mention, what do, what do we mean by the day of distress, or what do they mean? And a lot of times we say, well, they use metaphors, and the metaphors aren't really as serious as one would think. The day of distress is a definite, intense phrase. Obviously, because here the Assyrians are talking about coming into Jerusalem and taking Jerusalem into captivity. They just did that with the northern kingdom. Secondly, Habakkuk talked about the day of distress. I'd like you to turn there, and I know we're, we're doing some jumping back and forth, but it's good. It really is good. It's good that we see that the scriptures confirm each other. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16... Habakkuk, who was also a prophet to the southern kingdom around this time as well, and a little later, he was there when uh, he was a prophet as they were being taken into captivity. I'm talking about the southern kingdom. And Habakkuk hears that that's exactly what's going to happen. Judah now messes up, and we're going ahead. This is a spoiler alert. We're going ahead in time, and he receives the prophecy that that's exactly what's going to happen. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to take Judah, Jerusalem, and they're going to take them into captivity. But watch what he says. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips, and they, they quiver, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. The day of distress is the Babylonian captivity. It just doesn't get any more intense than that. So when Hezekiah tells these men to go to Isaiah and say, this is a day of distress, that's like sending out an SOS signal. That's like saying we're really in trouble. And then do you see the metaphor he uses? He says, it would be like a, a woman, a mother, in labor, about to give birth, and there's no one there to help her deliver. No one there to deliver her. That is a day of distress. And this is Hezekiah conveying all of this. 
We see then in verse 4, and it says, Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Well, what's interesting about this is Hezekiah saying, you know, hopefully God heard this. Well, of course God heard this. But I think what he means is hopefully God will intervene because sometimes God doesn't intervene. And again, another spoiler alert. What's going to happen during the time of Jeremiah, God is going to say, Jeremiah, I don't want to hear it. Do not pray. It is beyond that. And so perhaps Hezekiah is thinking along those lines of, we know that God heard, but maybe did he hear in a way that he's going to intervene? And what was it that he was supposed to hear? The reproach of these Assyrians talking about God as if he was one of the other gods of the other nations, saying that even he doesn't have strength to deliver them. And then he asks for Isaiah to pray, to pray for the remnant. So there had been those there in Judah and even in Jerusalem that have lost their lives, and it's dwindled down a little bit, but all is not lost. But Hezekiah is asking for prayer that there's a remnant. And by the way, you could go through the Old Testament and see that theme. There is always a remnant. God always has a remnant. And this prayer will be answered. Verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Well, it doesn't say what they said to Isaiah. It doesn't need to because I'm sure they said everything that their king, King Hezekiah, told them to say. But what we have is Isaiah's response. And so now Isaiah is going to respond in verses 6 through 13. He's going to give a message. What is that message? Well, it's a message of hope. It's a message to trust in the Lord. It's a message to not be afraid. All right, so it begins in verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord. Let me just stop there. That is what a prophet is. You don't claim to be a prophet, a pseudo-prophet, and, and tell people things, and then automatically they endorse them. These Old Testament prophets were chosen by the Lord so that everything that comes out of their mouth is exactly what God wants to say. It's God's word. God even had a test for false prophets to which if they were a false prophet, they could even end up being stoned to death. And that, that phrase, thus says the Lord, that's, if, if you're wondering why should I believe that the Bible is God's word, that's the phrase right there. That's the stalwart phrase, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. We have God speaking through the prophets, thus says the Lord. It's God's word in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, we have the apostles, and the apostles were God's spokesmen, God's chosen spokesmen. What does he say? Thus says the Lord, 
do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So first of all, he says, don't be afraid. Number one, that means that King Hezekiah was afraid. Number two, it means that he's supposed to stop being afraid. And we see these exhortations even in the New Testament. We see them about ourselves. Do not be anxious about anything. I'm so glad those verses are there because we are anxious about a lot of things and we have to stop being anxious. How do you stop being anxious? Well, that's the big question. We'll see a little bit more of that answer as we go through this and watch the example of Hezekiah. And then notice, if you would, in verse 6, he does say, I heard, I heard this Assyrian blaspheme me, saying, I'm just no more than any other god, and I have no power to intervene. Here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 7. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. In other words, Isaiah is given the prophecy from the word of the Lord. Do not be afraid of this guy. This guy is going to end up bad. He's going to end up on his own sword. But first of all, what does it mean when he says, I will put a spirit in him? I believe this is referring to the spirit of fearfulness. This is not that he, that he allowed a demonic spirit to be in him. This was a, a, in, in his spirit, he was fearful. He heard a rumor and it was going to have an effect on him. And he would end up being fearful and going back to Nineveh and not going into Jerusalem. Verse 8. Then Rabshakeh returned, and he found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So we will be talking about Lachish and some of these other towns, um, but they're not very far from each other. Lachish is very famous. Um, if you go to Israel, you probably will go to Lachish. We'll talk about that later. But here we find the king of Assyria going to Libna. Why did he do that? Well, there was a rumor that he heard. Verse 9. When he heard them say concerning Turakah, king of Cush, that's Egypt, behold, he has come out to fight against you. He sent messengers again to Hezekiah saying, so basically what we're saying here is, is he's moving. The king is on the move. He's not staying there and putting a fortified city there. He had heard that the king of Egypt is coming up to fight against him. So I don't know how fearful he was, but he was concerned. Okay, He was concerned that he should do something about it, and so he's on the move. And we're going to see how this is all going to fit together with him moving out of there and going to Nineveh. But the author doesn't give us that at the moment. But what does happen is he doubles down. He's seeing that he's going to have to fight now. Looks like he's going to have to fight. That's the rumor. And um, it, it, it is a rumor because that wasn't really happening. That king wasn't coming up against him. But he heard that rumor. Um, there's a lot of rumors that go around. We see that on the news all the time. Doesn't matter, though. I mean, a rumor is just as good as 
an error or a falsehood and a truth. I mean, hey, as long as it sells paper and have you have you tune into the media, well, it's a rumor and it, and, it, and it caused a reaction. And we see God's sovereignty here. So he doubles down and says, all right, go to Hezekiah. I may be leaving the area, but you better submit. And he begins to double down on those words and he he defames the Lord with more intensity. Look at his words. In verse 10, he says, Thus say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So now he's not only saying that God doesn't have the power, he doesn't have power to defeat the Assyrians. He said that he's a liar. God's not a God of truth. He's a liar. He's telling you he will deliver it, but he cannot. Verse 11. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Verse 12. Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them? Answer is no, it's rhetorical. Even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar, did, did they deliver them? No. And what about the kings? What about the kings of those nations and those nations who worship that false god? Did the kings step up? No. Verse 13, where is the king of Hamath? Where's the king of Arpad? The king of the city of Zephervaim and of Hina and Iva. Where are they at? Obviously, they're not around. And this is a message for Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you're not going to be around either if you are going to not submit. And at that point in verse 14, we find out that that message was given to Hezekiah in a letter. Look at Verse 14, then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. So the, the vernacular of the king has intensified. Um, but now we're going to see this, this new section where Hezekiah, uh, I'm sorry, Hezekiah is going to respond but he's going to respond in the right way. He's not sending tribute. He's not going to try to ally with Egypt. He's going to go to the Lord and pray before the Lord, and there's going to be more interaction with Isaiah. So he takes this letter, and he spreads it out. He goes to the house of the Lord, and he spreads it out before the Lord, as if the Lord doesn't know what it is. But what it reminds me of is a court case where... The defense is laying out its evidence before the judge and asking the judge for mercy and for help and intervention. He's about to pray to the Lord. And so he spreads this letter out. Um, it, it wasn't so much that God needed to see that. It was more of that Hezekiah's heart needed to do that. Hezekiah needed to respond fully and wholly as he came to the Lord. 
And verse 15, you've, you, you have to love this. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And we're going to talk about this prayer. And it's a, it's a great prayer. Um, I love to come to the prayers in the Old Testament because it's a wonderful study on prayer. There's, on the one hand, elements in everyone's prayer in the Old Testament that's similar. But at the same time, there are these different aspects because it's a different situation. But now we see Hezekiah doing what a king of God's people should do, going to the house of the Lord and then praying. This is what every leader ought to do, leader of the church, leader of the family. This is what we ought to be doing. So if you say, well, I don't know what to do, look at Hezekiah. When you run into these difficulties, you ought to be going to the Lord. You ought to be going in prayer. Might I even say, you ought to be going to the house of the Lord. You ought to be going to the house of the Lord. That's where, supposedly, when we pray, that the word of God is being taught. But I want to make another mention about this idea of prayer. Because the house of the Lord, which it's termed many times, is also called the house of prayer. You remember when Jesus cleansed the temple from the money changers because the money changers were ripping people off and they had made the temple into a, a place of robbers in a den? He quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 56, verse 7. And I'll just ask you to turn there uh, because it's such a cool verse. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, we see that the Lord calls his house a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. I'm just going to stop there. And when Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers, uh, it says, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Well, where, you're thinking, well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Isaiah, and here's one of the places where it's explained. Hezekiah goes to the house of the Lord, which is also the house of prayer, and he prays to the Lord. Now, in verses 15 through 19, we see his prayer, and I'd like to go through that. But let me just mention five major aspects of his prayer. The first one is God's sovereignty. And that's, that's a theme that's in almost all of these Old Testament prayers. And it ought to be in our prayers too, especially when we're going through trials. But I will say this, uh, perhaps you, you feel like I do, that whenever you do go to the Lord in prayer, there is a peace that comes over you because right away you realize I am talking to the almighty God. I am talking to the all-powerful God who could do all things and he is sovereign. Okay, You're not complaining just to another human being. You are praying to God who can do something about it if it's, if it's his will and no one can thwart his will. So the first aspect is God's sovereignty. Then he's going to pray about God's reputation. This is another aspect of prayer. 
Um, he's going to appeal to God's justice. He's going to suggest God's existence by intervening. And then finally, God's glory. So let's pick it up quickly. Verse 15, looking at God's sovereignty. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And I just, you know, if you ever are called to do a devotional, just take Hezekiah's prayer and do that as a devotional. There's a lot there. The first thing he says, you are enthroned above the cherubim. Well, where do we have that in our minds? Well, that was the Ark of the Covenant. The two cherubim there on the Ark of the Covenant where God would meet with sinful man as long as the high priest had the blood on the Day of Atonement. Well, so God is a merciful God. And if he's also a sovereign God, God is a God of hope. He can do all things, and he's also a merciful God. And then it goes on to say, you alone are God. There are no other gods besides you. And, and, and I'm saying, thank you, Hezekiah, because one would sometimes think in the Bible that all these gods that are mentioned, maybe they are real gods. No, they're not. They don't exist. Isaiah talks about, you know what, you know what happens with idols? They take a tree. And they chip away the tree to make an idol. And then they take the chips and go make hamburgers for the family when they go camping from the same tree. It's not a live personage. It is a false god, one that doesn't exist. But God, you do exist. And he's the god over all kingdoms of the earth. And that's, that's probably pretty good for us to know as believers. We, we, you know, we see things happening in the world, the news. We see some of the countries uh, getting, uh, getting more powerful, flexing their muscles, saber-rattling. It's scary. Well, we serve the God who's the king of all kingdoms. He made heaven and earth. That's how powerful he is. Then he goes and talks about God's reputation, verse 16. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. And again, does God hear? Of course he hears. You can't say anything that he doesn't hear. In fact, you don't even have to say it. You just have to think it, and he knows what you're thinking. But what is meant here is not only hear, but give your attention to it. Intervene in my situation. He says, open your eyes, take notice, O Lord, and see. And then he says, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Hezekiah doesn't say, hey, we're Judah. We're your people. You need to help us. He, he's smarter than to talk about their righteousness because they have none. And it's because of discipline that they are where they are in the first place. But he does appeal to God's reputation. God, I know it's our fault that he was able to come and say these things, but did you hear what he said about you? And, and, and I, Isaiah must have remorse there that, you know, they were in some way a cause of that because they didn't 
listen because they didn't trust the Lord right away. And so he, he says, you know, Lord, for your sake. And then verse 17. He says, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. And he's, he's calling upon God's justice, God's sense of justice. And, you know, we do find that in the Old Testament. We find that in the prophets. We find it in kings. And basically is this. God will raise up nations to discipline other nations, including his own people, when they deserve it. Case in point, the northern kingdom. They're gone. But does that mean he just lets evil go on? No. In every one of those cases, he goes back and he brings discipline upon the very nations that he allowed to be raised up. He brings judgment against that. Jeremiah was told to go tell these kings this judgment. You're very powerful now because the Lord has allowed it, but you've, you've, you've stepped over the line and you think it's all because of you. Your day is coming. And so we see God's justice. Um, then we see God's existence in verse 17, um, where he says, Truly, O Lord, uh, hold on, verse, let's go verse 18 here. Verse 18. Um, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. So what, what's the point here? He's saying, look, Assyria blasphemed you, and Assyria has devastated these, these lands and these kings and killed many people, and they destroyed these gods of the other nations. Now, that sounds like a good thing, because that's what the kings of Israel were supposed to do, except that they're gloating about it. The kings of Assyria said, we beat these other gods. Who are they? Where are they? They don't exist. You beat gods who don't exist. But now you are up against the one true God, the creator, the sovereign one. Are you sure you want to do this, Sennacherib? And then in verse 19, he speaks of God's glory and says, Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. So in other words, it's may you be glorified. It's not so much that we want to be rescued, although we do. It's that you be glorified and that people don't ever defame your name. That is his prayer. And all of those things are a very selfless prayer. It's a biblical prayer. And, you know, sometimes we get in the habit of saying the same prayer and the same cliches over and over again well how do you get out of that well get into the bible and see what some of these prayers are and and how they exalt the lord and and by the way that's what we're supposed to do according to jesus's model when he taught his disciples how to pray pray like this not repeat it but pray like this our father who art in heaven hallowed holy be your name when we first come to him we ought to be exalting his attributes his character well, here's a whole bunch of them that we can do that with. Well, at this point, we want to bring back Isaiah. Isaiah is going to, through from the Lord, he's going to answer Hezekiah's prayers. And so 
Is God going to answer? Did God hear? Was God's eyes open? Did he even hear Sennacherib rail him? Yes. Verses 20 through 34. So this is quite lengthy, and I'm going to have to kind of move through this so we can get to the end. And so, as I said, this is verses 20 through 34. Look at verse 20. Then, after he prayed, Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, and here we have it. I love this phrase, thus says the Lord. That is the backdrop, again, of why we believe the Bible is inspired, infallible. Um, this, this is our whole basis for why we serve the Lord, because we believe his word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, James has the remark, you do not have because you do not ask. I wonder how many times we don't have because we don't ask. We could say, well, God, I know you're busy and I don't want to trouble you with my little things. The answer to that is all of our things are little. There isn't any big things that we could bring to a big God. So they're all little. And by the way, God is our God. He's our God. We've entered into a personal relationship. He entered into a personal relationship with us. We are his people. He wants to hear from us. Like a parent wants to hear from their child once they're grown up, going into college. Hey, why don't I ever hear from you anymore? He wants to hear from us. So he, he wants to hear from us in prayer, also in communion. And it makes me wonder if sometimes, because we do go to him in prayer when things go bad and the chips are down, it makes me wonder if he doesn't put us in those situations more often just so that we pray, just so that he can hear our voice. And he says, because you prayed, I'm going to answer. And the opposite of that is if you don't pray, well, there's not a 100% guarantee that I will answer because you didn't pray. Now, we do know God is so sovereign that he can even answer before we pray. God can even answer if we don't pray, but the point is that God wants us to pray. He wants our fellowship, and we are carrying that out when we pray. Verse 21, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. This is Sennacherib. She has despised you and mocked you, mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion, and she has shaken her head behind you the daughter of Jerusalem. Well, let, me, let me explain that a little bit because you have to wrap your head around it. So first of all, he personifies the king of Assyria or the Assyrians as a female. And we see that. Uh, the um, Judah and the southern kingdom is referred to as the younger daughter. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is referred to the older sister. Okay. There's a relation, and, it, and, it, and it's feminine. Why feminine? By the way, you go to the book of Proverbs, and Solomon personifies wisdom as 
a woman, female. And it, it, one of the ideas behind this, and this was told to me by one of my professors in Bible college, is you're, th you're thinking mostly of, in, in Proverbs anyway, where he says, I'm writing to the sons of Israel. And you're thinking, what is one of the most influential things in a man's life? It would be his wife. It would be a woman. Um, you know, when, when God made Eve for Adam, you know, uh, he, he was excited to see her. Someone just like him, only prettier, okay? And a compliment to him as he compliments her. Well, so there's a female personification here, and it says, she has despised you. And I think we're talking about here Judah and Jerusalem at first. It says the virgin daughter of Zion. In other words, uh, the idea of virgin is that um, they have not been violated and attacked and defeated by Sennacherib. That's the idea of virgin. That's what it says uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary. The term virgin emphasizes that Jerusalem would not be violated by Sennacherib. But then he moves from there, and it's no longer mocking Judah or shaking your head behind them. Verse 22, it says, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed, and against whom you have raised your voice, and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. It's true. So to go after Israel, you are going after God. And God had said that to Abraham. Uh, now, of course, at the same time, that doesn't mean his people can do anything they want. He is a God of justice and gave out discipline on them as well. But the idea is, so you've, you've, you've attacked and you've taunted Jerusalem, my holy city, and my people, and then you've gone ahead and taunted me. And, and at, this, at this point, all of us, Jews and Christians alike, are saying, yeah, this is like when you're watching a movie and the bad guy is getting away with everything and it looks like he's going to win, but all of a sudden the good guy with the white hat at the end of the, he, yeah, you're like, yeah, go for it. Well, that's what we have here. You've messed with the wrong sheriff right here. You wrestled against the Holy One of Israel. Verse 23, through your messengers, you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. I cut down all the cedars and its choice cypresses. And I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells, drank foreign waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. In other words, we did whatever we wanted to do, and we defeated everyone, and we're coming after you and your God. And then God intervenes. Have you not heard? <laughs> Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. And by the way, that is the definition of the biblical attribute 
of God's sovereignty. He does what he pleases. And you can say, well, that sounds terrible. I mean, because if mankind does what he pleases, he's usually going to do evil. That's not God. God is always good. God is always righteous. Whatever he does is righteous. But he does whatever he wants, whatever pleases him. And it's always a righteous thing. And he says, I have planned all of this. And it says that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. What? What's he saying here? He's saying, look, Assyria, yep, you've, you've come to power. But who allowed you to come to power? It was God. Now, does that make God sinful? No. Because God can bring either blessing or judgment upon anyone in, in, in all the world and all the ages. He just sometimes carries out some of those things through other nations. And he carried it out through Assyria on his own people. He's going to carry it out through the Babylonians in the southern kingdom. And he's going to say the same thing. I did this. So, Sennacherib, you're getting a little arrogant here. I've allowed you to do it. And then he says, because I've been in charge, verse 26, therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up, comes and goes, and I do all that, and I allowed you to defeat them, and I allowed them to not defeat you so that you would move and eventually go to the northern kingdom. Verse 27, but I know you, Senate Cherub. I know all about you. And this kind of reminds me of Psalm 139 where David is saying this in a very wonderful way. Lord, you know my sitting, you know my rising. You know, there's that personal relationship. Well, there's a negative side to those who don't know him. He knows their sitting and their rising and their thoughts, but it's not good. He says, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in. And watch this. And you're raging against me. I heard what you said about me. Verse 28. Because of your raging against me. And because of your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put a hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. You're done. It's over. And of course, the, the uh, hook in the nose is that um, ri nose ring, nostril ring that they put in some animals. Uh, sometimes it's actually through the no nostril cavity, and sometimes it's... It's a temporary one where they ha don't have to go through that. And, of course, we know what a bridle is in the lips of a horse. And uh, it, it guides them. God says, that's what I'm going to do with you. You know, I'll just, I'll just take the rein and I'll just tug the rein and you'll go to the right. Or I'll tug the rein and to the left and you'll go to the left. I'll, I'll just stop you or I'll just tug on that ring in your nose and you'll come this way. And he says, I'm going to send you back where you came from. All of those threats against Judah, Jerusalem, Hezekiah, it means nothing. This is the God we serve. And then he says this, verse 29. He says, 
then this shall be a sign for you. Well, let's just stop there. We saw that earlier, did we not? We saw the sign uh, for Ahaz, and the sign was that there will be a virgin who will be with child. It had a temporary fulfillment there, but then Matthew applied that to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's another sign. And then this shall be a sign for you. What sign is it? Well, you will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap, and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. What's he saying? There's been a devastation, but not a total devastation. And what's left is you're going to eat. And then the next year, what grows up on its own, you're going to be able to eat that. But the following year, it will be back to the norm of blessing, of my blessing. And you will reap the produce and the agriculture and you will be blessed. And then he says, verse 30, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So isn't that interesting? The Bible says that God's sovereignty, he, he puts down nations and kings and raises other nations up. And of course, he does that with his people. And he's saying there will be a remnant in Judah. And then look at verse 31. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant. And out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. And it's at this point where there seems to be an allusion to not just the temporary um, fruit and growth, but what about even when they get into Babylonian captivity? This is when the Lord will restore. And some believe that this is a mention and a reference to the millennial kingdom when the Lord comes back, sets up his millennial kingdom, and, and fulfills all the promises and covenants to Israel in those thousand years. Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. All those things he threatened, he's not even going to get an arrow out of his quiver. In fact, he's not even going to have a quiver. And all of those things he threatened are not going to happen. Verse 33, by the way he came, by the same he will return. And he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. So this is the Lord's answer to Hezekiah. This is the answer to prayer. This is the Lord watching out for his people. And then look at verse 34. This is going to help us understand God and the book of Kings for I will defend this city to send it to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. There it is. I'm not necessarily saving this city because you all have been followers of me. I'm not necessarily saving it because of anything else, but I first and foremost is saving it because of me. This is what I want. My, I've raised up Jerusalem. Jerusalem, there will be a Jerusalem established, or should I say, Jerusalem will especially be established in the millennial kingdom. And then we find out that heaven, what is heaven? It's the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. Jerusalem will be forever. 
And God said, for my sake, I will save it. And he said, and for my servant, David, as well. For David. Well, then, what happens? Well, we come to the last and final section, verses 35 through 37. And we find out what happens to the army of the Assyrians. Verse 35, then it happened. You know, when you read that in a story, I mean, you get ready for the drama, but when that's said in the Bible, it's, you know, wow. Okay, then it happened. It truly happened, and it's usually not good. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Wow. So much for the army. And let me just stop right there. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? It's one of my favorite topics in the Bible. The angel of the Lord, I believe, and, and many believe this, many good good commentaries and, and scholars believe this. It, it, it's probably the majority viewpoint. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ before he took on flesh. And so the, the angel of the Lord we see throughout the entire history of Israel, even when they were going through the wilderness, the angel of the Lord was there. So the Lord Jesus Christ was with Israel the whole time, and he would do certain things. And the reason why we think that he was the angel of the Lord is because, number one, whoever the angel of the Lord was, he was divine. He was deity. So now you have three persons of the Trinity to decide which one was the angel of the Lord. But you remember with Hagar in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord speaks to her. And in verse 13, it says, she called the name of the Lord in, the, in that place. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Well, you didn't see God, did you? You saw the angel of the Lord. Unless the angel of the Lord is one of the persons of the Godhead, of the Trinity. And of course, he is. And we see other scriptures that define that. And then you say, well, okay, you know, is it maybe one God? There is a doctrine out there, oneism, where there's only one God, but he kind of manifests himself in, in um, you know, three different hats, different responsibilities. There's a real problem with that. First of all, the scripture doesn't even get close to that. The scripture talks about each member of the Godhead is a person. Now, again, it's the Trinity, so... Yeah, it's hard to grasp. In essence, it is one God. But it's a, the Trinity subsists in three persons. And we see one of the persons of the Trinity talking with the angel of the Lord. So they're separate. So even though he's divine, he is separate. And by the way, uh, it makes me think of when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized. You remember that? It says that from heaven came a dove, the Holy Spirit upon him. And then the voice of the Father was heard. Now, if you're thinking that's all one, you have to believe in divine ventriloquism and divine illusions that you have one person here and the illusion of another person. 
And that's not the case at all. There are many, many scriptures that back up the Trinity. Anyway, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is the second person of the Godhead, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see that he struck 185,000 Assyrian warriors. It goes on to say, when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So it could either be talking about the inhabitants of Judah or it could be talking about the soldiers or, or people that were left in the army, King Sennacherib, one of them, and they, they 185,000 people were dead, warriors. Now, on the one hand, we might say, well, at this point, Sennacherib got out of there because he thought, yeah, the king of Egypt has come. Although others think he perceived this as a divine miracle. I, I don't know. It doesn't say, but he wasn't sticking around to find out. You know, that was like the time that, um, that was like the time that I was uh, hunting for turkeys, minding my own business, and I came across the black bear. He was, I was going, we were on the same trail, and I was going this way, and he was coming that way. So I did the polite thing. I got off the trail and got down, and I had the pleasure of watching that bear just, um, you know, go past me, and he went down, and I'm just getting ready to go back up the trail and go the way. And all of a sudden, I see he's got his nose to the ground, and now he's off the trail. And now he's start, starting to circle me. So what happened then? I had no idea. I got out of there, and I had a camouflage jacket that I left. So the, the rumor is that there's a black bear up there wearing a camouflage jacket. But anyway, I got out of there, and that's what Sennacherib did. He got out of there at this point. And then look, it says, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. So Nineveh was the capital, one of the capitals anyway, of Assyria. And that's where he went. And then it says, And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. And this happened many years later. Um, that Adramalech, Nice name after the god Malek that you burn your children to. Adramalek and Sharazer killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. So it's just as Isaiah had said, he was killed by his own sword. Well, Quickly, and I, I really am out of time, and this is what gets me into trouble. I would finish on time if it weren't for the applications. But I feel like I can never quit without giving some application. And last week, we talked about difficult times could remind us of the Assyrians outside the wall and how to deal with that. And, uh, you know, Hezekiah ended up paying tribute to the Assyrians because he was feeling responsible for, for Israel and all of those people that would probably have lost their lives if Assyria were to come in and kill them all. He should have trusted the Lord. But this week, we're not outside the wall. This week, we're inside the wall. When he talks about the day of despair and the day of distress, he is talking about the Assyrians coming through the wall, over the wall, to siege Jerusalem. And so now it's really a threat. 
But the thing is, even though it's a real threat, and even though he still has the responsibility for the lives of all these people in the kingdom, he's going to do the right thing, isn't he? He is going to trust the Lord. And by trusting the Lord, the angel of the Lord came and delivered Hezekiah, Jerusalem, and Judah. So as we think about our week, and maybe, maybe we're going to see and hear the threats of Assyrians, remember that we should always follow the Lord and not seek some other way out. It's interesting, that verse that we read in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, when he talks about the day of distress, of a real thing that's going to happen, the Babylonians are going to take them into captivity. Let me read it. I've got to read it. Habakkuk chapter 3, 16. Let me read through 19. This is his response. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble because I must quietly wait for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there shall be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds' feet and makes me walk on my high places for the, yeah, on high places. And so there is a sense in which we must go through these things. And there's also a sense in which by trusting the Lord and keeping our eyes on the Lord, rather than all of these Assyrians, we are able to exalt the Lord we are able to trust in the God of our salvation. We are able to rejoice and wait on him. And he will place our feet on high places. That It's not that we're going to be untouched by it, but we will be able to get through it because he has raised us up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And, and Lord, every verse is rich with truth and lessons and applications. And Lord... We go through trials, and maybe they're not Assyrian trials, but they are trials nonetheless and serious, real threats, could affect us, could affect our family. Oh God, may we remember to always exalt you, to rejoice in the God of our salvation, to know that you are our strength, you are our refuge in the day of distress. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Any thoughts or comments on that?